0: Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 while the kids go back to their children's church and nursery. Well, over the past several years, I think all of us have been aware of the COVID pandemic that kind of swept the world. But long before COVID, And continuing to this day, there was a different kind of pandemic that was happening. And it's only gotten worse and worse and worse over the years. And that is what I call the pandemic of pornography. Pornography is everywhere in our world today. And really, I hate talking about it because it's just sickening. But consider these statistics from a a ministry called Covenant Eyes. In the U.S., 70% of men ages 18 to 39 view pornography monthly. 70%. 46%, almost half, view it weekly. And it's not just men. 63% of women ages 18 to 39 view pornography monthly. Yes, it's worse with males, but it is also a problem among women. 21% view it weekly. Among teens, it's worse, male or female. 8% view it daily, 18% view it weekly, and 57% view it monthly. And one website reported that every day, People watch a cumulative total of 12 million hours of pornography from that one website alone. Let that sink in. Around the world, one website, 12 million hours of pornography watched every single day. That's just incomprehensible. That's crazy. And those are figures from before COVID. So I can only imagine that it's gotten worse with us all being isolated and on electronic devices even more. And pornography is only one type of sexual sin. These statistics don't cover things like adultery or homosexuality or sleeping together when you're not married. And of course, only God could come up with accurate numbers for things like the amount of dirty jokes that people make or the greedy, lustful thoughts and desires that people have. Only God could count that. And while it's very easy to point fingers outside to the world, we also need to consider how this affects us. Because this is a problem in churches In the U.S., 64% of Christian men admitted to viewing pornography monthly. 37% said they view it weekly. 15% of Christian women view it monthly. And 7% view it weekly. And this is very sad. One-fifth of youth pastors and one-seventh of lead pastors that were interviewed admitted to regularly struggling with pornography pornography. That is sad in many, many ways. Here's another example from Pew Research. They published a survey in 2020, and of the people they surveyed, 36% of evangelical Protestants, that's us. That's the type of church we are, conservative evangelical Protestant say that casual sex between unmarried people is sometimes or always acceptable. 46% of evangelical Protestants said that, casual se- or said that sex between unmarried people who are in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. Almost half said that it's okay to sleep together, even when you're not married, as long as you're in some sort of serious relationship. of evangelical Protestants said that unmarried people exchanging sexually explicit images of themselves is sometimes or always acceptable. That's crazy. Why in the world, how in the world, could someone who claims to be a Christian believe that? This is a problem among Christians. This is a problem within the church. And if it wasn't at least a potential problem, Paul would not have written the passage that he wrote today, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. That's what we're going to be examining today. Even after we are saved, we still struggle with sin. We are not sinless. We know this. And one of the types of sin that we struggle with, one of the types of temptations that we face is sexual sin, especially when our culture is just saturated with it. It's on TV, it's on billboards, it's in magazines, it's everywhere. You, you really can't escape it. So how do we fight this? How do we resist these temptations, especially when maybe before you were saved, that was a normal part of your life? It would have been so for the Ephesians. A large part of Greek worship involved going to the temple and sleeping with cult prostitutes. That was normal for them. And yet when they're saved, we come to Ephesians 5 and Paul says, No, get rid of that. There shouldn't be a hint of that among you. And as Christians, we need to understand the, the deadly danger of this type of sin. And that's why Paul writes Ephesians 5, 1-6, and in this passage he says, Because you are God's child and saint, imitate God's love and avoid sexual sin, which brings God's wrath. Because you are God's child and saint, imitate God's love and avoid sexual sin, which brings God's wrath. So let's read these verses, Ephesians 5, 1-6, and then we will pray. And we'll see what Paul has to say to us, what God has to say to us. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children... And walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Let's pray. Lord, the topic we are looking at today is extremely sobering, extremely serious. God, I pray you would give us grace, humility, ears to hear your word. Show us where these truths apply to us in our lives. Strengthen us in your grace and love to do battle with the temptations that we face in our lives. Lord, open our eyes to see with alarming clarity the danger of these sins. Do not let us take this lightly. And help us also to marvel at the great love that you have shown us as your children, as your saints for whom you died. Lord, how can this be that you, our God, should die for us? So help us to stand amazed at your love to have a passion for your holiness. Help us to live out these truths that you have written for us in your word. Lord, I pray you would strengthen me to proclaim your word with accuracy, with clarity, with love, with humble honesty as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins positively here with this family imagery, saying, because you are God's child, imitate God's love. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. This word imitate is the word that we get mimic from. So it's the idea that as God loves us as his children... We pick up on that. We learn how to love others from Him, and we mimic that. We imitate it in our lives. That's the relationship. When God loves you, He's not just loving you, but He is also showing and teaching and modeling for you how you should love others. We follow this love in our lives, and it says we are Dearly loved children. This is beautiful. We are beloved by God. That if we have turned from our sin, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we have been born again, we have been adopted, like we saw in Ephesians 1, as God's children. And He loves us with an unfathomable, beautiful, rich, sweet love And then we go and share that love with others. And this is a natural part of being God's child. That as He is loving, we have His life in us, and we will grow in being loving as well. It's like with our kids. There's some things that they just naturally do. And we look at Judah and we're like, yeah, he is a Sigmund when he does that. Or when Ruth does something and Angie goes, yep, she is my daughter. We should be living like that where people go, wow, they are loving. They must be a child of God. But what does this love specifically look like? What does it look like for a child of God to live in love? Well, we need to look to the example of the perfect Child of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so in verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. This is the supreme example of God's love for us. That Jesus Christ came to earth and He lived a sinless life in our place and He suffered and bled and died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, as a fragrant, pleasing offering to God. That is what our love should look like. It is cross-shaped, true love, Christ-like love will move you to sacrifice of yourself for the good of others, to serve others, and as Jesus said, to lay down your life for others. And when you do that, like with Christ, because of Christ, it is a pleasing, a fragrant aroma, an offering to our heavenly father that's amazing now when we think of this though we might think that we have to do something big and grand like in the the last book that we read for our men's bible study the manual he told this story about this guy who jumped in the ocean and fought off a shark in order to save his wife it's like wow that's laying down your life to love somebody well yes But how many of us have the opportunity to do that kind of thing, right? Really, we need to see this kind of love fleshed out in our daily lives, in our mundane details of the things we do every day. So maybe when you disagree over something with your spouse and it's really not a big deal, instead of continuing to argue about it just to prove that you're right, you just say, okay, We're just going to drop it. It's not a big deal. We're going to argue about it. We'll do things your way. I'm going to lay down my preference, die to myself, and love you and do things your way. Or maybe your kid wants to listen to that same song or read that same book for the 5,000th time. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you say, okay, I'll do it again because I love you. If I could say it from memory by now, or kids washing the dishes or doing chores so that your parents don't have to, or maybe with your coworkers or classmates, you know, a lot of time there's that one person that they just get left out. Everybody kind of talks about them behind their back, and they don't really have a friend. Maybe we stand up for them and we say, "Hey." That's not right. And we go, and we be their friend. We sit with them at the break table or in the lunchroom. Or maybe among us church members, you take the time to go visit someone who's sick, or you take the time to do a Bible study with someone to help them with a problem that they're dealing with, or you take the time to pray for each other. That is incredibly loving Or to think about the context that Paul is talking about here, most specifically with sexual sin, we live in Christ like love when we refuse to use others for our own pleasure. We refuse to even look at someone with selfish, lustful thoughts. Instead, we treat them with respect, with purity even in our own minds, that is loving. And when we do those things, even those small things, it is an act of Christ-like, sacrificial love, and it is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Father. But you might think, how do I get there, Zach? I mean, we're all just naturally self-inclined So, how do I get to the point of doing these things in my daily life? Well, our passage gives us some hints. Number one, meditate on God's love for you as his child. The more you understand about God's love for you, the better you will know how to show that same love to others. Secondly, Meditate on the love displayed in Christ's sacrifice. So it's very similar to the previous one. The more you understand about Christ's love and His sacrifice for you, the more you're going to see and be aware of opportunities in your life to show that same love to other people. Oh, here's an opportunity where I can lay down my life, so to speak. Give up my personal preferences, give up my interests for the good of someone else, just like Jesus did for me. And then I also encourage you to do this to pray Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This was the kind of the hinge in the middle of the book where Paul goes from talking about theology to talking about living out all the theology that we've learned. That we're seeing now and what does he pray for in ephesians three fourteen to 21 i'll just read it to you for this reason i kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named i pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray that prayer. Take that and pray it for yourself. That the Holy Spirit would strengthen you and open your eyes to understand the depths of God's love for you. To fill you with that love and transform you to live out that love in your life. Really, everything we've seen so far in Ephesians 4 and 5 needs that prayer behind it. We can't live these things out without the Spirit's enabling, without the love of God actively working in us. We even talked about that some in Sunday school this morning, about how we can read and study the Bible and it can be academic, but it's not going to affect us and change us till the Spirit turns on the lights in our hearts. That's what we need. So because we are God's children, we must imitate God's love. We must learn from our Heavenly Father how to love others. And the supreme example of that is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But that kind of loving lifestyle stands in direct contrast to a different kind of selfish lifestyle that, sadly, our world often associates with love. And to talk about this, Paul includes another aspect of our identity, and he says that we are God's saints. As our big idea says, because you are God's child and saint... Imitate God's love and avoid sexual sin, which brings God's wrath. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks." So because you are God's saint, avoid sexual sin. And even though Paul is transitioning here from talking about Christ-like love to sexual sin, and he's talking about transitioning from being a child to a saint, there is a connection here. He's not just completely changing topics. True love, Christ-like love, is the opposite of, of sexual sin that he is commanding us to avoid here. Love is sacrificial. It is selfless. But sexual sin, lust, those sorts of things are selfish and greedy. That's why he includes those words here in the verses. He says in verse 3 that greed should not be heard of among you. And then Later on, he talks about being an idolater. That's a self serving thing. And he possibly, like I mentioned in the introduction, he is probably contrasting here with the Greek culture that the Ephesians were saved out of. Okay? A lot of times in Greek culture, part of their worship was to go to a temple, you offer up a bull or some sort of sacrifice and then you sleep with a cult prostitute in the temple. That, like, blows our minds, right, that people could think that is part of worship. But actually, in pagan religions, Greek culture, Roman culture, Canaanite culture in the Old Testament, it's a pretty common facet of their pagan worship. So to them, a lot of times, they probably would have thought, Well, these things are normal, right? Why is that wrong? And here comes Paul and he says, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Don't even let that be named among you. And how does that contrast with our world's ideas about sex and love today? There are things that our world has just adopted so quickly as being normal Transgenderism, homosexuality, sleeping together outside of marriage, all these things. The world just says, yeah, that's totally normal. And Paul says, no, that is sin. It should not be named among you as saints. I remember one time in our previous church in South Carolina, this was one of the most heartbreaking things I'd ever heard. Our church there also helped out with a pregnancy care center like our church does here. And one of the ladies in our church would counsel women that came in. And this, she told us this woman had come in and she grew up in a home where she was sexually abused. And she started talking to her, sharing the gospel with her, showing her from the Bible what God's plan for sex is. And it just blew her mind. she thought, I thought the way that I treat, was treated was normal. That is so sad. That is so sad that our world can think that way. And Paul says it should not be named among you. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, he mentions sexual immorality. And this is actually the word, word, the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography from. It's just a general word for any type of sexual sin. It just covers the whole gamut, really. But usually it focuses on outward acts. But then he gets to the inner aspect. He talks about impurity. That's the moral defilement, the moral uncleanness that comes from sexual sin. That when you sin sexually, your thoughts about sex are messed up your desires of concerning sex are corrupted the morals that you come up with are flawed you are defiled inner in your inward person and then he gets even deeper when he calls about when he talks about greed you might think why did he suddenly bring up greed Doesn't that have to do with money? Well, yes, but that's not the only type of greed. Sexual sin is also greed because it looks at a person that God has forbidden you from treating sexually, and it says, I want that. That is greed. That is lust. That is covetousness. When you desire a person sexually that God has forbidden you, to do that so what role should these have in the Christian life very clearly Paul says it should not even be heard of among you there should be no hint of this in a Christian's life now don't misunderstand me I'm not saying that sex itself is bad God created sex. He created it as a good gift to be enjoyed, but only within the bounds of marriage. That is the only place where God has allowed sex. And in fact, he's made it in such a way that in marriage, a healthy sexual relationship is one of the ways that you can show your spouse Christ-like love. But any sexual act outside of marriage is sin. And as it says here, even selfish sexual desires, even if you don't act on it, that is a sin. As Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, even if you just look at someone with a lustful heart, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. Even those selfish desires are sin. So if you see someone in town or on TV or on the internet and you are lusting after them, you entertain sexual desires for that person, that is sin. So why should we avoid these things? Paul says because that is the proper way for saints to live. It is improper for a saint to live in sexual sin. Saint literally just means a holy person, a person that God has set apart for himself. And he's not talking about super Christians, okay? Sometimes we have this mistaken idea that a saint is someone who's super spiritual. No, the biblical idea of a saint is Every Christian is a saint. Every believer has been set apart by God, and we have a responsibility to live out that identity, to live in a holy manner, because God has made us holy. And he even looks at our speech. He's talked about our acts, our hearts, And then he says with our speech that obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are also not suitable. We know what he's talking about. The dirty jokes that people make. The sexual innuendos that people say in their conversations. Those sorts of things. He says that also is not proper. It does not fit in a saint's life. Why? Because as Jesus said, you speak out of the abundance of your heart. So if filthy jokes are coming out of your mouth, it's in your heart to begin with, and that is sin. So what is proper? What should we do? Well, Paul, interestingly, says we should give thanks. He says, don't do these things, they're not proper, but rather... Giving thanks so again we have to think a little bit what's what's the connection here how does thanksgiving contrast with sexual sin and actually when you realize the connection you see too that giving thanks can be a powerful way to fight temptations like this giving thanks to God is one of the primary ways that we worship God and the ultimate thing we thank him for is the gospel. If we're focused on that, if we're truly humbled and thankful and grateful for the gospel, we're not going to let temptation lead us into sin. Giving thanks humbles us. When we thank God for things, we are admitting, I didn't do this for myself. Lord, you gave it to me. Thank you. Humility kills sin, especially sexual sin. Sexual sin grows out of pride. Giving thanks also fosters contentment. Remember that we said sexual sin is a form of greed. It's covetousness where we're wanting something that God has forbidden. But if we're so busy counting our blessings, we're not going to be greedy for these things God has forbidden. We will be happy, content, joyful, thinking about all the things that God has blessed us with. And giving thanks takes our focus off of us and puts it on God. And again, when our focus is on him, we will turn away from sin. So the next time that you're tempted sexually, however that may be, A magazine cover in the grocery store, whatever, pop up ad on the internet. Start giving thanks to God. Turn away and start thanking God, and especially thank Him for the gospel. So, we are God's beloved children, and we are also His saints. We must be loving and we must be holy. That means we have to avoid sexual sin. And then in the last two verses here, Paul gives a really heavy, sobering truth that should also motivate us to live this way. As our big idea says, because you are God's child and saint, imitate God's love and avoid sexual sin, which brings God's wrath. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. So Paul says, because of God's wrath, avoid sexual sin. And he gives a very sober kind of pay attention, wake up. He says, know and recognize this. He is calling us to listen carefully to what he is saying. He says, people who live this way, people whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, greediness, they are idolaters, and they do not have an inheritance in God's kingdom. What does that mean? What does it mean that they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God? Well, Paul is not saying here that You know, every Christian gets into heaven, but only the ones who live really good lives, only they get into the kingdom. So if you want to be in the kingdom, you better make sure you live really good. No? Well, let's think back to what we've seen about this idea of inheritance in Ephesians. Turn with me to chapter 1. Just go back a few pages to Ephesians 1. We'll look at verses 13 14 Paul here is listing all the blessings that we have in Christ and he says in chapter 1 verse 13 in him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and when you believed the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance same word until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory now, look down just a few verses at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. So, Paul says here, that when someone believes the gospel they are sealed with the spirit as a down payment of this inheritance it's not something that you earn by working for it every Christian receives this inheritance in God's kingdom when they believe we don't receive the fullness of it but we get the promise of it from the Holy Spirit So when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that people do not have an inheritance, what does that mean? It means they're not saved. It means they're not born again. If you are saved, you are an heir and a child of God. You have an inheritance in God's kingdom if you are saved. If you do not have an inheritance in God's kingdom, then that means you are not saved. That is what Paul is getting at here. And why does he say back in chapter 5, why is it that these people do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Because of the way they live. Because ultimately they are idolaters. And their sexual sin comes from an idolatrous heart. We act out in sexual sin because in our heart we worship something other than God and we're willing to sin to get it. That is where sexual sin comes from. It is idolatry and God will not allow that in his kingdom. God is the only God. He is the only one worthy of worship. When he brings his kingdom to this world, he is not going to allow idol worship in that kingdom, even idol worship of the heart. And that's why, when someone is truly saved, when they are truly born again, God changes them from the inside out. They go from worshiping their self-created, self-serving idols to worshiping the true and living God. That is a true Christian. But you might be thinking, well, I thought our eternal destiny was faith alone, in Christ alone, grace alone. Why does Paul say here that our actions can show us that someone's not truly saved. What about all those people that were surveyed in the beginning that said they were Christians, but they thought it was fine to commit these sexual sins? That's why Paul goes on to write verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient Because of these things and that phrase there disobedient if you have a different translation it might actually say sons of disobedience that's the literal translation that's kind of an idiom in their culture to say someone is a son of whatever to say that they are just characterized by that quality so Paul is saying these sons of disobedience they're Their lives are just characterized by disobedience to God. You could think of a son of foolishness. He's just, everything he does is foolish. That's the idea that Paul's getting at here. And he says, we cannot let ourselves be deceived with empty arguments. And I will be honest, one of the most deceptive, empty arguments that we face, especially in American Christianity is that you can be saved by Christ without ever being changed to be like Christ. That is a lie. And it has been around since Paul's day. He clearly argues against it here, and especially in Romans, especially chapter 6. Sadly, many people have accepted this today and it's it's an example of taking one biblical truth namely that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone but we use our flawed human logic to come to the wrong conclusion about it so the logic goes like this i'm saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and not by works well that means i can live however i want Now. Logically, that does sort of hold up. If all our sins are forgiven, I can do whatever I want because it's already forgiven, right? But the problem is we're missing information. And this is how Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 6. The information that you're missing with that logic is that true saving faith will result in good works. God's saving grace will change a person to be like Christ. It's like one of my professors in college would say, birds fly, fish swim, and Christians grow. A true Christian will grow to be more and more like Christ. So here's the biblical logic. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that saving grace and faith will result in a changed life. Therefore, if someone never changes, they were never saved. Do you see why this is such a big deal? That we follow the Bible's instructions about this. And Paul gives us actually an illustration of this in Ephesians. He's very clearly in this passage referring back to what we've seen earlier in chapter 2. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 quickly. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And that word, disobedient, that's the exact same word Phrase sons of disobedience that Paul uses in our passage in chapter 5. He goes on in verse 3, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So again, there's another connection back to what we've seen in chapter 5, that these people are under God's wrath. They are not saved. The illustration that he uses here is that of a dead person. He says, apart from Christ, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. So what does that mean when someone gets saved? They come alive. If a dead person gets life, you're going to notice it. There will be a change in that person. Sometimes we think, well, they prayed a prayer. Doesn't that mean they're saved? Well, that's like propping up the dead person saying, hey, I'm going to share the gospel with you. And you're sharing it with them and their head kind of slumps forward. (gasps) They prayed. They bowed their head. And then you just lay them back down are they alive no they don't move they don't breathe they don't talk they're still dead and so if someone prays a prayer or makes a a decision and there's no evidence of life in them there's no evidence of change why would we think that they've come alive Salvation is not just praying a prayer. It is not just making a decision so that we can get out of going to hell. Salvation is when God raises you from your deadness and he gives you new life. And that will change you. That will change a person. So I want to be very clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying here. I am not saying that works play a part in our salvation. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm not saying that we have to do good works to be saved. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I'm not saying that when someone gets saved, if they go in sin, then they lose their salvation. No. It means they just weren't ever saved to begin with. And I'm not saying that you have to be sinless in order to be assured of your salvation. That's also not biblical. Christians aren't perfect. We are not sinless. But we will grow. We will become less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. So what I am saying is that a person who is truly saved will have evidence of God's grace in their life as it changes them to become like Christ. There will be some sort of evidence that this person has been given new life in Christ. If we don't see any evidence, why would we think that they've truly been saved? Saved. So, unrepentant sin is evidence that someone is not saved. That's the flip side. Even if they claim to be a Christian. That's the whole point of church discipline that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. They're part of the church, they claim to be a Christian, but they refuse to repent over their sin... And so eventually it gets so bad that you have to say, we, we can't accept your profession of faith anymore. It's not genuine because you won't repent. And this means that a person in whom God is working will respond to warnings like this with appropriate self-examination, appropriate repentance, and dedication to God. If you sit there and you think, well, that's not for me. That's for somebody else. I know I'm saved by faith alone, so I'm just going to live how I want to. That is not the response of a child of God to God's instructions. Okay? If God is working in your heart, you will hear these warnings you will hear these instructions and your response will be something like yes lord i want to live like that help me to live like that please grow me so as paul says know this do not be <clears throat> deceived if your life is characterized by unrepentant Sin, if there is no evidence that God's grace changes you to be like Christ, then you are not saved. You do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God, and you are still under his wrath. I don't care how long you've gone to church. I don't care if you've prayed the sinner's prayer. I don't care how much Bible knowledge you have. I don't care if you could tell me every detail of the gospel inside and out. If there's no evidence of God's grace changing you in some way, then you've never truly trusted in that gospel that you might know so well. You've never received the new life That Christ offers and that change will look different for everybody for all of us at least it is a gradual process for some of us the next day it is an amazing transformation but there will be some kind of evidence of growth and change over time So I'm not saying this to make you despair and to doubt your salvation if you are truly saved. I'm not saying this to make you wallow in guilt over past sin that's already been taken care of. I'm not saying this just to be mean. I am saying this because it's true and it glorifies God and because I love you. I would hate For anyone in this room, for anyone who hears this message to deceive themselves into hell when all along they thought they were on the path to God's kingdom. And if there is anyone like that here, I pray that God would use this to open your eyes to true repentance, to true saving faith. And to connect this to our bible reading plan like i did in the announcements if you're on schedule then tomorrow you will start reading through the book of first john and even if you're not doing the bible reading plan you can still read first john and i would highly recommend that you do that if you're struggling with this because really that's the whole reason he wrote that book of First John, is to give Christians assurance that they are truly saved. And so if you're struggling with this, read through there. Look at what John says is the evidence of truly being born again, truly being a child of God. So, do you see why these things are such a big deal eternity is at stake you cannot have both jesus and sin if you have jesus he will work to get the sin out of you so again if you hear this message today And your response is something like, yes, that's what I must do. That's how I want to live. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Help me to be holy. Help me to be loving. If your response is something like that, that is good evidence of being born again. But if your response is something like I said earlier, well, I'm already forgiven. These things don't apply to me. I can just live how I want. Sin's not really a big deal. Then I'm a I fear for you. I really do. Because that is evidence that you need to examine your heart and get things right with God because most likely you are not truly saved. <clears throat> so, in a minute, what I'd like us to do is just take a moment and pray quietly by ourselves examine your heart talk to god about these things if he's convicting you of a certain sin confess it ask for his forgiveness and rejoice rejoice in the love that he shows you as his child rejoice in the death of christ that gives you forgiveness from that sin if god has stirred up in you a fresh passion for him to be loving, to be holy. Pray for him to help you live that way. And if you are worried about the state of your soul, pray for God to make things clear for you, to make it clear, to show you if you are truly born again. And that might mean that sometime after the service today, you need to get with someone and look at the Bible and get things straight that's good. That is okay to do. I am more than happy to help you do that if you need to talk about this. So this isn't an invitation time, but it is a time to pray quietly, to reflect on what we've seen, to respond to the way God is working in our hearts. So go ahead and take a minute to pray, and then I will pray and close us. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for the wondrous love that you have shown us. Thank you that you love us with a love that cannot be comprehended. That as your children, we are beloved in your sight. Father, we love you that help us to love you more. Fill us with your love. Strengthen us by your spirit that we may live lives of Christ-like love and of holiness where we would avoid sexual sin especially, but really any sin that we would work to rid ourselves of sin and be holy as you are holy. Thank you that you have not left us alone in this fight, but that you do empower us by the spirit and that you give us one another to strengthen each other in this fight against sin. And Lord, I do pray that everyone here today would be able to leave with a clear conscience, a clear heart before you because they have truly trusted in Christ as their Savior. So we pray for this and thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.